Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to study your word and to open up an ancient and holy text and still hear you speaking today. God, what a privilege that is. Jesus, right now, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place, that we would be connected to you and to one another through the power of your spirit and through the teaching of your word. And we ask, Jesus, that all of us, myself included, will be drawn closer to you um, as a result of our time together. We ask it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so I know we've been going at like a snail's pace through Leviticus so far. So today I'm going to cover four chapters. Sound good? All right. What we're going to do is, um, if you'd like a Bible, we can grab one for you. Or if you have one electronically, you can use one of those. There are Bibles at the back entrance um, coming into the church. And we're going to grab hold of some large chunks of text, not wander in the details. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't wander yourself during this week sometime. Unless you're in the garden to garden class, you have no time for wandering. You're reading an hour of text a day. Don't wander. You already read it. All right. So as we go through Leviticus chapters 6 through 10, we're going to hear some repetition. But the repetition that's present as we're kind of concluding the offerings, then we're going to do initiation and consecration of the priesthood. The repetition that is present is actually a little bit distinctly different. It's not that the Bible is going to keep telling us about the burnt offering again or the fellowship offering again. This is a know your audience moment. Beginning Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we'll hear this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons. So as we start hearing those scriptural groupings on the offerings again, burnt offering, fellowship offering, all of those, we have to recognize that these are now the instructions for the priesthood, not the general Israelites. Now at the end of uh, Leviticus 7, it'll go back and it'll say, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. And the inclusion of the commands for priests are distinctly different than the inclusion of commands for Israelites. There are some commonalities. Everyone's doing a burnt offering. But priests are held to a higher and distinctly different standard, and we're going to get into that tonight. So that's a little bit of Leviticus 6 and 7. When we get into Leviticus 8, oh, by, sorry, just let, really quick, let me let you know this. For the Israelite layperson, the sacrifices are divided really mundanely. So Leviticus 1 through 3, is these are voluntary sacrifices, and then these are things you absolutely have to do in Leviticus 4 and 5, mandatory sacrifices. But for the priests in that section, the sacrifices are divided between most holy and holy. So very, very, very holy and holy. So immediately the distinction is different. Rather than voluntary and mandatory, it's all of this is mandatory for the priests, and some of it's really, really holy, and some of it's just holy. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 is where we're going to pick up then into a piece of our narrative. So after this discussion about the consecration and then the inauguration of the priests, and they talk about the vestments and the priests have to make specific offerings, Aaron is now going to offer up in front of all of the people into the fire of the Lord an offering. And he, after he does this throughout chapter 9, he lifts his hands toward the people, blesses them, blesses the people, And then comes down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. And Moses and Aaron enter the tent of meeting. And he comes out and blesses the people. And the glory of the Lord appears to the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat offering on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. 
like shout with joy at this incredible sight that God's fire has come out and eaten up all of that burnt offering and sin offering on the altar. Chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Avihu, each took his censer, put coals in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized fire or unauthorized coals before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, through those who are near me, I will show myself holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron was silent. So just so we're clear, fire good, then a couple verses later, fire very bad. Same fire. Holiness, presence of God, Good and something we are in awe of, and holiness, presence of God, something that takes the life of Aaron's two sons. In just a couple verses. Pay no attention to your chapter marking there. Just read through the story. And Aaron is silent. Moses summons Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come forward, carry your kinsmen away, your cousins, from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And they came forward and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had ordered. And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Itamar, Do not dishevel your hair, do not tear your vestments, or you will die. And wrath will strike all the congregation, but your kindred and the whole house of Israel may mourn the burning that the Lord has sent. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the anointing of the Lord is on you. And they did as Moses ordered. Seems wise. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, Drink no wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting, that you may not die. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. And this ends our reading. So tonight's talk is entitled High Voltage. And this comes from a scholar, Jacob Milgram, who talks about the high voltage of the super sanctum, the super sanctuary, this high voltage that sort of shoots out from God's presence in their midst, this power that is present. And as we start to look at our text, I'm going to suggest to you, and you can follow along with me and see if you agree, that this story of power, of presence, of God's holiness, this high voltage, is a story that proceeds throughout our entire text. When we hear stories like this, we often immediately just go, whew, glad I am not a priest, right? And so glad I don't work with fire, and really glad I'm not back in that time. It seems like God is capricious. He's um, difficult to figure out. We don't understand entirely what's going on. What is it that they did that wasn't okay? Um, This unauthorized coal that they put in the censer. How are all these things? What is happening here? It doesn't make sense. Thank God. And I hear Christians say it all the time. Thank God Jesus has come. That we don't have to pay attention to such madness anymore. Sure. Sure. I mean, I actually, I think 
for both our Jewish brothers and sisters and Christian brothers and sisters, nobody's doing this anymore. This is a very ancient text. This is an old practice. We don't do this anymore. Nobody's doing this in Jerusalem. There aren't people doing it. This is a synagogue. Do you see any weird fire going on? Like we don't have some censored, although we do have an eternal flame. Uh, behind the screen, there is a constant flame on a light um, in order to remember the constant light that was at the temple and the tabernacle. But nobody's doing this anymore. But what we can see throughout our Exodus and Leviticus story thus far, this desert story we link, is that God's holiness is powerful. Now, this isn't new news to us because we remember that at the theophany of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, that all of Israel was told to stay back and stay away from the mountain as God was speaking. And that if they didn't, they would die. And in fact, God tells Moses up on the mountain, go back down and tell them to go back. He's like, I already told them. He's like, no, go back down and tell them to go back because they'll die. And even as God speaks, the people shudder and freak out and tell Moses, you just go talk to God because we will surely die. So we have this concept already in our narrative approaching the book of Leviticus. It's not new news or news that these sons of Aaron had no idea that God was holy and that an exposure to God's holiness and presence would bring death. We have this beautiful passage in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses says, show me your glory, God, I pray. He said, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim you the name, the Lord, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. He says this to Moses. And the Lord continued, see, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you into the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand. And as I've passed by, I'll take away my hand and then you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen because you'll die. So we know that God's presence is so powerful. His holiness is so powerful that if it is imparted upon those of us who are not holy, it brings death. We already know this before we get to Leviticus chapter 10. We know that the holiness itself indicates God's presence and dwelling. When we look at the tabernacle and the way that it's functioning, we have this outer courtyard. But we have what we would call in archaeology in the ancient Near East, concentric circles of holiness. That the further that you go in, the more holy the presence of God is, the more set apart, the more powerful. So, so everyone can come into the courtyard, but then the priest can only go even a little bit further into this portion of the sanctuary. And then they certainly can't only but once a year go back into the Holy of Holies. Concentric circles of holiness. Um, I used to joke, I'll joke again, uh, that this reminds me of tan lines. So concentric circles of holiness, right? The distinction is like, you're like, oh, and these are portions that nobody sees and everyone can see this portion. It's a concentric circle of holiness. And God has that same thing present when we go into the tabernacle. It's a concentric circle of holiness. The closer that you get in and specifically as priests move in, they have to be, as we've just read in Leviticus 8 and 9, consecrated and inaugurated specifically for this moment where they will be brought into. 
So even though these particular sacrifices and these particular instructions aren't given to all of Israel as laypersons and they are given to the priests, the priests themselves still are held to a higher standard. Remember, James says, be careful those of you who would be teachers, right? You're going to be held to this higher standard. And as the people are moving in closer and closer, some are kept back from God's holiness. And even as they go in, they have to be careful about how they approach God. And these are all these rules that we read in Leviticus that sort of put us to sleep. If somebody's had an issue of blood, then they have to stay out. If they've had this type of thing, if they have a rash, if they have mildew in their house, if they have all these things. But it's not about a whole bunch of rules to say, you're bad, you're missing an eye, therefore you go, right? It is about explaining that the very presence of God's, very presence of God and his holiness is dwelling in our midst, and that if you take that lightly and you just walk in, you'll die because it's God. I don't think we have an appreciation for this. We don't understand this at all because, well, particularly at Spark, we're definitely not high church, are we, right? So where it's like grab a cup of coffee and hang out and people are kind of milling about. We love this, but it is not in any part of our culture that there are parts up here that are restricted, right? The kids can come up and play the drums after service. That didn't happen at my church growing up, right? And, and I think there's good and, and less good in all of that on both sides. But in our present experience, we don't have a context for things being so holy, so powerful, that, that its mere purity could take us out. But the ancient Israelites understood this. And I think those that followed Jesus did too. It's such a power, this incredible sacred sanctuary, that holiness becomes like a contagion. So with it, you shall anoint Exodus chapter 30. They're talking about the the utensils in the tabernacle. You'll anoint the tent of the meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, its utensils, the lampstand, the utensils, the Ark of the Incense, the altar of the burnt offering with all its utensils and basin with the sand. You shall consecrate them so that they may be most holy and whoever touches them will become holy. But that doesn't necessarily mean like special and sparkly, right? I think that's, oh, and then if you touch it, then you become holy too. It's that the holiness in this case is a continuation of being set apart and being sacred and having this imbued power. Leviticus chapter 6, which we just were reading. Every male among the descendants of Aaron shall eat of it as their perpetual due throughout your generations from the Lord's offerings by fire. And anything that touches them shall become holy. So this holiness, like if I am a lay person, an Israelite, and I am not consecrated, and I am not clean, and I am not set apart, and I go and I touch something that has become holy, then the power of that actually can take me out. It's not the idea of only that, oh, and my uncleanliness could make that unclean. There's actually certain things where the holiness itself is so powerful that it just knocks out anything that's unclean and decimates it. There is a point, in fact, in Talmud, we were just talking about this in Garden this last week, two weeks ago. uh, The Talmud, the rabbis discuss and say that the Torah scroll itself is so holy that even a Gentile cannot make it unclean. Even a woman with an issue of blood cannot make the Torah scroll unclean. Isn't that kind of amazing? Because it's God's very words. So if 
take that picture of Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood, when she goes and she reaches and she grabs his tzitzit, his tassel, she becomes clean because the power that is there is greater than the uncleanness, and that flows out. So something about this equation is happening in this ancient world, but we have to, we have to recognize that holiness is lethally contagious to unauthorized persons, which I don't think we think about that capacity of holiness even if the person is intending to be respectful. So if you'll remember, Uzzah studies the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and then, because it's about to fall, so he, he reaches out to grab it so it won't fall, and he dies. And we think, man, God, you're so mean. It's, it's not that. It's that it's holy. It's the very presence of God. And Uzzah, just, not anyone can just go and touch that. Even Moses has to be pushed into the cleft of the rock. And the same when the people in Bet Shemesh look in and die. And if you remember our Samson story, his parents have a visitation from the angel of the Lord. And the wife says, we have seen the Lord. We will die. We are surely going to die. You wonder why so many people are afraid whenever there's a visitation. And the angel's always like, fear not. Fear not, right? They're like, oh, now I'm dead. Because it's simply too holy and it's distinct awareness, not just of sin, not just of our unworthiness, but of the mere, like this, these are two entities that don't mix. This is God almighty creator of heaven and earth trying to have a relationship with humanity itself, a humanity that's been so wicked that we've all been wiped out, save one family on a nice box boat. So this sanctum contagion, these ultra-sacred objects whose own sanctity is so powerful it can sanctify others, when it's misused, it can be disastrous. And it brings upon the offender excommunication or death. And this is this word karet in the Hebrew. We'll talk about that person shall be cut off from their people. That person shall be cut off from their fathers. That person shall be cut off from their people. And people discuss, what does that really mean to be cut off? Does it mean that they're immediately excommunicated? Maybe. Does it mean that they're not going to have any part of the afterlife? Maybe. These are the interpretations that were around in that time. That if people misused this power, if they didn't engage with this presence of God in their midst, within the right vehicles and forms, they died. It's a weird thing to think of. But at the end of this whole experience in chapter 10, Moses says to Aaron, God through Moses to Aaron, talks about the sacred and the profane. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Sacred versus profane, holy versus common, clean versus unclean. And these concepts are going to be persistent now throughout the rest of our text and the rest of our relationship with God and with one another. How do we understand the sacred in our midst and how do we leave out the profane? And because I used to be a poli-sci major, I just can't help myself, some of the dialogue and the discourse that is going on in our nation right now is profanity-laden, and it feels like it should not go with the office of a leader in the world. And I'm not talking about a political position. I'm just saying that is not appropriate table conversation, let alone for the president of the United States. And if we can determine that this is inappropriate discourse and dialogue 
a lack of civility with this level of profanity by people, multiple people, not just one individual, multiple people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus himself. Lord, have mercy. Hear our prayer. If in those moments we can say that profanity does not belong with this office, then you guys, Calva Homer, how much more is that true for the very presence of God in the midst, dwelling in the midst of Israel? Not, not a king, not a president, not a leader, not a justice, not a priest at a church, not a rabbi down the street, simply not a teacher, but God himself then we have to start to understand that there is holiness here. And I think as Christians, we forget quite a bit of this because we get very comfortable with buddy Jesus, right? But God says very clearly in Leviticus chapter 11, and this will then be quoted again throughout our entire text, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall be holy for I am holy. So it's very clear from the very beginning that God's standards for his people are centered around behaviors of holiness. And when we read through the rest of Leviticus and we start to read about, and in Numbers, people that get swallowed up in the earth and people that are cut off or people that are killed or who die, all of these different types of things, all of this needs to be centered around the knowledge that God's very presence is dwelling in the midst of this people group in the tabernacle itself. These people can actually see the presence of God walking with them in the day as a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and at night as a pillar of fire, and then resting on the very tabernacle itself, that they can be camped out and and be worried and scared and look towards the general direction of the tabernacle and see the light burning and remember that the presence of God is with them. But that presence is not about being buddy Jesus. It's not about having God as your best friend. There's aspects of that in our faith, and that's beautiful, but we also have to remember that God is God. And God has a standard for how his people will behave because he has a standard for himself. And from the very beginning of Genesis, we see a pattern of discipleship that God is modeling for us what it is to look and be and follow him according to his commands. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to come and do. We have this high voltage power in the person of Jesus as well. John chapter 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked this. He's in the garden and he's about to be arrested. Who are you looking for? Whom are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua ben Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. There's power in the presence of Jesus, too. And in this moment, you'll remember, he's saying things like, don't you know I could call down 10,000 angels to defend me? Don't you know I have power? But my power doesn't come like this. But don't mistake the fact that I am laying down and submitting to death, even unto death on a cross, Philippians 2 tells us. Don't mistake my submission unto death with a lack of power. With a lack of high voltage power. So in Acts chapter 5, 
after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, we have this weird, interesting story. The early church is formed, and two people decide to come and give some money. A man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds, and he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. And now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young man came up, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. What a weird story. Just hold the picture of them wrapping up his body in the garment for a minute. Let's finish our story. Here comes his wife. She walks in. They ask her, hey, did you? Oh, yeah. She's like, that's the amount. Was this the amount? Oh, yeah, sure, totally. It's, he's, you know, don't you know right now that your husband has just walked out? Yeah, no, it's the price. It's good. Dead. So she confirms the lie, drops dead, and he says, the guys that just carried out your husband, they're going to carry out you too, and sure they do. And great fear sees the whole church and all of who heard these things. Two people dead, two people dead, lying to the Spirit of God in the presence of the disciples in Acts chapter 5 and carried out and buried. Just like Aaron's sons who died And we're carried out and buried. And here's this weird and interesting bit. All that's interesting too. It says back in Leviticus 10 that when they are taken out, that they are first wrapped in a garment and then brought out by their tunic. Because you see, they're holy now. That lethal contagion of holiness as the fire of God has come out. And hit them as they brought unauthorized coals before the Lord. Now anyone that touches them will also die. So they grab the garment and pull it out. And we have that echo here in this Ananias and Sapphira story too. Where it says that they were wrapped in the garment and pulled out by the garment and laid in the ground. There's something that's happening in the early church that is an echo of the power and the presence and the distinct holiness of God all the way back into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Is God doing a new thing? Absolutely. But is that new thing deeply imbued and invested into the cultural context and the historical story of Israel? Absolutely. And in Acts chapter 2, we see fire come down and fire come out. And 3,000 are added to their number. And now we see in the people themselves that the presence of God is dwelling in such a way that when a person lies, that person drops dead. Now, we don't have that problem today, do we? There would be people carried out of churches all across America, pastors included, on a daily, weekly basis, right? Oh, yeah, sure, no, I always give 10% to the church. Bam! Like, just hit the floor, All of us, right? We're all out. Pastors who would stand up and go, oh, yeah, you know, I've never done this, or I've always done this, or don't you know, and don't you know that we should... Dead, just right on the spot and out. Right, we could tell if people were lying. Like, oh, they must have been lying, they're dead. 
right? <laughs> Cause of death, lying. <laughs> try, don't try to do CPR. It's too late. They're just going out. Nobody touch them. <laughs> don't check the pulse. We're in trouble. Yeah, this is a crazy story. And a lot of times when we think of stories like this, we only think about that weird, quote-unquote, God of the Old Testament telling these crazy, weird stories like this where people just die. But this is not the case. These types of stories persist into our New Testament church community as well. Why don't they persist today? Well, people are lying and not dropping dead, right? So we're like, well, maybe that's not the case here today. Something's shifted, right? Something's changed. It's, a little, it's operating a bit differently. It's not like, oh, but then Jesus died and was, and was resurrected because that happened before Acts 5. Something's shifted. I know deeply that one of the things that has shifted for me is I don't have a context for that kind of power and holiness. Not readily accessible to me. Like people, you know, will go to conferences to understand about the power of prayer or the power of this charismatic worship. We'll go to specific teachers to try to find and experience bits and pieces of maybe a taste of this. But be honest, none of you came here this Sunday expecting to find such a power that would knock somebody dead for a lie on a Sunday afternoon. You did come expecting some good food, some coffee, some fellowship, and some, hopefully some teaching. But we didn't come with the expectation that we're going to encounter this type of power. That holiness is beautiful. It's like fire. And fire can heat your house. It can keep you warm. It can help you cook your food. But it can also burn your house down. It has to belong in its spot. And God's presence, and I would add the reputation of God, how we speak about God, what we casually hear pastors, preachers, followers of Jesus just go, oh yeah, Jesus this and Jesus that. And that seems like a distinct lack of holiness, a distinct lack of the understanding of the preciousness of God's holy words. Fred Rogers, who's like my personal hero, from the time I was little and still today, of blessed memory, he said that the space between our mouth and another person's ears is holy ground. He was a Presbyterian minister, if you didn't know. And I love that. That the words that we say as followers of Jesus, how we speak about one another, how we talk about one another, how we talk about the church, how we talk about other individuals, all of these things create realities in our world, and we, I think, have quite muddled the sacred and the profane. We've taken a lot of the profane and mixed it on in. And we have lost an awe of the power of God. We've made Jesus our best friend. Amen. That's great. But we've forgotten to make him our Lord. And there are things that are expected of us. In Colossians chapter 3, and I love this beautiful passage, we are given some instructions for holy living. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do you remember that the New Testament does talk about the wrath of God? We just tend to overlook it. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the fire of God, even as it talks about how Jesus is our high priest and has ushered us in to the most holy of holies. It talks about the fire and the fury of God, too. We just forget about it. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Which is a really beautiful passage when you start thinking about those distinctions that were made for the priests and for the lay persons. But both in Leviticus as well as in our New Testament, we will be all be called a kingdom of priests. That God has called all of us to function in this way. Therefore, as God's chosen people, this is you all, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And it goes on, and the passage is beautiful, and you should read it. And I just want to say, this sounds really hard to do. It's beautiful. But don't you think it's also hard? And if we're talking about becoming God's holy and chosen people, and this is what's required, I bet there's a few of us in this room that go, can I just bring the lamb? Can I just bring my pigeon? Right? Is that okay? Because this is much harder. This is much harder to do than just bring a sacrifice of a grain offering on this day. But this power, this presence of Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that Christ in us, all of us together, dwells, God commands of us, of his community, that we live differently. Because God's presence, God's people declare God's presence in this world. And therefore, we're required to live differently. We declare God's presence in this world. We meet here every week on Sundays because we believe that Jesus is alive. And we believe that he is holy and that he is set apart. And that we as his people are called and chosen to be holy and set apart as well. And we want a space and a place where we set apart time every week. And we set apart a space every week that we might be able to encounter the sacred. That we might separate from the rest of our week the profane, the common, the unclean, and come into a space and a time where we move closer to the sacred, the holy, the set apart, the clean. And we come here because we believe and we declare that Jesus is alive, that God's presence is here in this world for people to meet.
First Peter chapter 1 gives us this exhortation. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy. Be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Where is that written? In Leviticus. What God teaches Israel in Leviticus, these hard lessons that he's teaching his people, the hard lessons that he's teaching in Acts chapter 5, the hard lessons that he's teaching in John chapter 18, all of these hard lessons are still present for us today. We are still called to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinctly different, because we claim the presence of Jesus in our midst. This ancient book with all these weird stories, with all these bizarre, like, wrath of God moments that we don't understand, the ethics and the truth behind all of them still exist today. God is holy. We're not permitted to just treat God as a trinket, as something to throw out to get a vote as a way in which to harm individuals, to bring fear, or to bring shame. We are not permitted to take the very teachings of Jesus Christ and use those to harm others. His words are holy. And we need to live differently, with compassion, with kindness, without malice, without slander. We need to not lie. We need to reject all of those things. And this is a daily a daily occurrence. And I'll be the first to say that I felt full conviction reading and studying for this week. That I had forgotten the holiness. That I am to be set apart. And it's my prayer for this community that we will be set apart here, not because we want to flout a distinction or difference, but because we want people to encounter the presence of Jesus. And we should look differently. We should live differently because we are following him. Jesus said to his disciples, just before he was crucified, in the upper room, he said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you, Lord, for this high-voltage power that you have in this world and in our lives. Jesus, forgive us as we've held others in unforgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, as we've forgotten your holiness in our life, your holiness in this world. And God, would you please, through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, through our beautiful community here at Spark, set us apart, make us holy and distinctly different for your purpose here on this earth, in this valley, in this bay, that the world might know that you are God and that you are holy. Amen.